0: Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. How many of you grew up in in Sunday school classes singing that song? Wow, a bunch of us did. How many of you think that was the most racist, color-biased, terrible thing I just said? Uh, 400 years ago when Jesus was speaking King James English when that new Bible came out, he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. In fact, he didn't say by any level of modern English, make the children suffer to come to me, but he meant to allow them to come. This afternoon we're going to talk a a bit about keeping children healthy as they grow up as we reach out to them. A few housekeeping details first. Can you hear me? I've got two microphones on. I don't know if either of them is working, but one way or the other, something's being recorded and something's being heard. Some of you looked in this booklet to see where you're going. If you really liked the description of this session, come back Saturday morning when we talk about nutritional research, because somehow the descriptions got put in the other place. Um, And I am Phil Fisher, and I have a name tag that I didn't put on. Well, I have two microphones on. And I haven't figured out, I'm supposed to be in charge of or well, contributing some to the organization of some sessions. And I haven't quite figured everything out. That's the confession. Um, so I have slides. And if anybody would like, you could have a copy, except I only brought one. Uh, but I could give you an electronic or mail you or whatever kind of copy. And we're going to refer to an article that's not quite published yet, but I could give you a pre-publication copy of an article It covers most of the medical facts we're going to be talking about in the next hour. Um, Does that make sense to everybody? My email address is there. If you want a copy of the slides, there are a bunch of pictures that won't fit in an email file, um, but you can see me sooner rather than later if you want to have the pictures. It is really fun to be here. I feel like it's family time here. I come in and I see Paul Kabanga, a pharmacist I worked with in the Congo when I lived there 20-plus years ago. Fascinating to see him. Bob White, another pharmacist, they're still working together after these. I haven't seen either of them for a decade and a half and two decades. It's fun to be together as family. People like Colleen Johansson, who's been teaching around the world, taking care of kids, even though she mostly does adult heart stuff. Russ, a pediatrician from Togo, Angela, a pediatrician from Pakistan, Andrea, a pediatrician from South Carolina, of all places. This is like old home week for me, coming to see people. So I'm thinking we should share these two microphones. I have some of the wealth of wisdom and experience talk, but they're hooked up to me right now. So we're going to have a little family time, and we're going to talk about some things. And we're going to talk about global child health. And I think of this as a family sort of a thing, as I realize, wow, there's another old friend from years ago. It is fun to see everybody here. Good to see you. Uh, But I think about family times partly because we are the family of apparently spiritually minded people interested in the health of children. We're the family raising children. I think of my own five children the oldest, the tallest in the middle is currently working in the Congo uh, with food distribution with Samaritan's Purse. Our daughter's working where we live in Rochester, Minnesota, but with a ministry reaching to people affected by crime. Our third child over next to me, oh, same sweater that day, same I haven't changed clothes since Christmas when it was snowing. <laughs> uh, our son, John, um, just got back from Congo where he had been working with Samaritan's Purse and now just back from Switzerland this weekend. Um, our Bearded son there was trying to look like somebody from that part of the world when we spent the summer in Afghanistan um, flying. He's in flight training school for uh, missionary aviation stuff at Moody. Our youngest daughter, Joanna is um, an intercultural studies major at Northwestern College. And I figure this is a family affair. We're family. I've got family. We're here together because we somehow care about kids. The kids of the world, the children of the world, are our responsibility. So we're going to talk a little bit about a big view of things as it relates to our collective responsibility to care for the children of the world. And this is not just a spiritual sort of exercise. It's a secular exercise. The World Health Organization and the United Nations have combined to produce what's called the Millennium Development Goals. The Millennium Development Goals are a series of eight targeted thematic approaches to improving the health of the world's population how many of you have heard of the millennium development goals before coming in here today about a fourth to a third of us had so the millennium development goals were goals and there are eight topics affirmed in the year 2000 the start of the new millennium by the united nations since ratified by 185 countries of the world In each of these sections, there are measurable target areas to to hit specific objective measurable sorts of achievements as comparing the year 1990 with what that specific targeted outcome would be in the year 2010, uh, excuse me, 2015. So it's starting in 2000, but compared to where we were in 1990 to see where we're going. If we look at the big view of how have we done in the first 10 of our 15 years to meet these goals, overall there's been a huge amount of progress. But 10 years into the 15-year project, we're not two-thirds of the way done yet. So we've still got a little work to do. So we'll use those eight goals as kind of an excuse, a structure to tell a few stories, give a few ideas. We won't get too practical, but I'm tempted to say we should be very practical. And we should take the however many, 70, 80 of us here, and divide up and say, 10 people get each goal, let's go out and save the world. Uh, We could get specific and tangible, but we'll see where we get to. There are eight goals, you don't have to read the fine print, we'll go through them. People that are recognized when they go around towns and countries have even spoken up for this. This is Barack Obama at a United Nations thing uh, 14 months ago now in Washington, D.C., speaking to the U.N. about the health of the world's children and what could be done. The United Nations put out a report um, that's available for free on the Internet. Um, If you want to see that's how we're doing in terms of a progress report as of last year in meeting the Millennium Development Goals. And the article I can give you if you want that's soon to come out in a journal called Annals of Tropical Pediatrics, um, that's an article that reviews how these eight goals relate to children and what kind of progress we've made. And so that article is available Um, If you want that for me, I can give it to you in some sort of electronic or some sort of form. So what we'll do today is we'll talk about the standards that we, the people of the world, are trying to meet on behalf of the rest of the people of the world, and we'll tell a few stories along the way and maybe have some fun, and we'll see where it all goes. Goal number one, eradicate extreme hunger and poverty. Wow, we just threatened to give ten of you the job of taking this goal. You think you ten can solve the problem of hunger and poverty? And yet there are measurable standards we're trying to hit as we actually try to make an impact to eradicate extreme hunger and cut back on poverty. But I realize that there's more to hunger than just having food. Two of my sons have worked in Africa now as adults distributing food to hungry people. But getting food to them is only part of the issue. I thought of this when I was in the Horn of Africa each of the last couple of years, but I was making rounds on one side of the hospital ward about bed number 8, and I looked over toward bed 10. I thought, that's really nice, the father-son visiting surgeons here taking care of patients. So I took this father-son picture, not noticing till I showed the picture to some friends of the father-son that, of course, we had the bodyguard with the AK-47 in between us because you can't walk through the children's hospital without an armed bodyguard. It pointed out to me that there's more to the health of children than just food than just the tangible physical pieces. There are wars, there are insecurities, there are structures that get in the way of children growing up healthy. And if we're gonna deal with extreme hunger and if we're gonna deal with poverty, sometime we'll have to also deal with a problem of armed conflict and insecurity and greed and corruption and sin in the world uh, because it all relates. On that trip, I walked out to visit some families in their homes and I really liked the colorful homes they had. But basically, they're trash houses, finding things that you can use just to make tarps to piece by piece cover up your house and have some dryness inside. We're going to deal with pediatrics, child health to eradicate extreme hunger and poverty. But we'll have to actually go farther than that. So a couple of years ago, some people at the American Academy of Pediatrics asked me if I could help edit a book on global child health. That book ended up coming out last month. And I thought that'll be fun. I know lots of smart people. I can get them to write chapters. Andrea wrote some chapters for this book. She wrote a lot more than I did. But I struggled to find anybody that could write the the section on malnutrition. And I realized that hunger and malnutrition are a problem for kids. I've worked overseas for years. I've seen the problem. I've taken care of malnourished kids, and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Taking care of malnutrition is really hard. And I thought, this will be good. I'm going to get somebody good to write this chapter so I can learn something. And everybody I asked to write the chapter turned me down. So I had to write it myself. Uh, That was not going to be very good. But along the way, I met some people, the key person of which is teaching in another session at this conference. And we can't tell you his last name. It's not in the program because somehow that's confidential for the place that he's working. But anyway, uh, so I realized he's out there on the front lines in a rural struggling part of Africa solving malnutrition. I visited the hospital where he works three years in a row. And once there were hardly any kids in the hospital, and there were lots of scrawny, malnourished kids around the community. The second year it was full of malnourished kids getting better. And the third year there were a few malnourished kids, but there weren't that many in the hospital, and there were hardly any on the streets. In three years he had turned around the level of malnutrition in a whole community. So I had had him write the chapter, and so there's something useful in that book because it's there. What's our goal with dealing with extreme hunger and poverty? Some of the specific strategies... Nobody really wanted to read the top line on this, I don't think, did we? Um, if we play. This is why we need engineers in the world. So if we are going to follow the United Nations goals, that's why we need orthopedists for when I fall. Uh, now we're crooked. We're all off balance now if I try to play engineer and fix this. So anyway, the top line is supposed to say, Eradicate extreme hunger and poverty, you've seen that. that. Part of the goal is to cut in half to have the proportion of hungry people in the world. If we look at how many people in the world are hungry by official definitions of hunger, in 1990 it was 46%. Five years into our 15 years to hit the Millennium Development Goals, it was down to 27%. Did I say hungry? I meant poverty. That's a pretty big drop in poverty. Almost a halfway, partway into this. We still have some time. We still have some work to do. How are we doing with the undernourished in the world? The numbers went from 20% in 1990 undernourished to 2002 about 16%, and in 2010 about 16%. Oops, little drop, plateau, and not much progress. If we look in Asia and South Asia, um, about half of the children are undernourished. 46% of Asian children are undernourished. Wow. There's some work to be done. And Asia is home to half of the world's undernourished people. So if we care about malnutrition, we're going to be caring about poverty. There's some progress. We're going to be caring about children, and there's some work to be done, and a lot of the work that we still need to do for malnutrition is going to take place in Asia. Goal number two, achieve universal primary education. All children should be able to go to elementary school. That's a very reasonable goal. It's a good thing to do. We know that if there's more education, then people are healthier and they're less likely to die young. Um, Some of that's because education helps us stay healthy. Some it's because education puts us in contact with other social uh, situations that make it less likely that we'll get sick and die. How are we doing? 82% in 1990, 82% of children were getting primary education. By 2008, the last numbers I've seen, it was up to 89%. That's progress. But the goal is universal, everybody getting primary education. We've still got about 11% to go. In this country, we talk about no child left behind. And it gets all political, depending on what we think about the politics of the program. But there are 69 million children left behind around the world without getting primary education. Most of those, about half of them, were in sub-Saharan Africa. A bunch of them were in Asia. And who's the biggest risk? The biggest risk are the rural poor females. As it's written here, the less risk is for the urban wealthy boys. We need some work to be done to get kids into school. We need to focus on girls in rural areas. um, And obviously the poor people are the ones that are not getting to school just as much. And we have millions of children still to help if we're going to meet this goal in the next five years. Goal number three. So that's pretty good. Number one, we're going to stop out extreme hunger and poverty. Number two, we're going to get all the kids to school. We still have six more goals to go. Number three is promote gender equality and empower women. We're looking at some of these goals as they relate to children. Where is there the need for gender equality as it relates to children and child health? It's going to be the same thing we mentioned in terms of schools. What can we individually do? How many of you sponsor a child in another country through compassion or world vision or something? Well, I thought it might even be more than that. How many of you are selectively gender biased when you choose a child to sponsor and go for the girls? Two of us, three of us admit to that, okay, but four of us. But if we were going to say it's girls that need the most help, we might try to make sure girls are getting the help, even as we're personally involved in supporting people. There are currently about 140 million illiterate children in the world. 63% of them are girls, and three-fourths of the illiterate children are in ethnic minority groups. So whether it's me choosing where to have my compassion money go to sponsor a child or whether it's me choosing where as a pediatrician to put some efforts as I go overseas or whether it's me saying, wow, next time I go to Congo, that would be next Monday, next time I go to Congo, I should make a visit to an elementary school and I should encourage people to be in school. There are practical, tangible things each of us can do in our homes, in our lives, and as we travel to make a difference around the world. Girls are not getting as much education as boys. For health reasons, for social reasons, we should do that. Number four, everybody with us so far? Comments or questions yet? Number four, this is where we get pediatric. How many of you are physicians? Keep your hands up. How many of you are planning to be physicians? Ooh, nice. Uh, On your hands down, how many of you are nurses or planning to be nurses? And how many of you are proud to be other? Okay, very good. Nice, (laughs) nice, nice. Some of the others, what kind of things are you into? Motherhood, pregnancy, nice. Husband's a med student. student. Wow, she works harder than all the rest of us. All right. What are some of the other others? (laughs) Nurse, Oh, that's very nice. So you're kind of everything. Good. All right, so we all have roles that we can play, and when we get to the tangible clinical medical stuff, reducing child mortality is going to be a big job for us. We don't want children to die. Sadly, when we talk about the health of the children of the world, we're still talking about the risk of survival. And the fine print here is just a little reminder from a publication saying that worldwide there were 11.9 million preschool children that died in the year 1990. Uh, In the year 2010, there were 7.7 million preschoolers who died. That's fantastic. Four million fewer preschoolers died just 20 years after trying to start doing things better. There's good news. Four million fewer children died before preschool. There's bad news. Nearly 8 million are still dying every year, almost all of which are preventable deaths. There's work to be done, but thanks to the United Nations, or thanks to God working through the United Nations and some of the rest of us, um, there is progress being made. There are articles being written in medical journals about the countdown to 2015. How are we doing as we wait till the end point of these Millennium Development Goals? Taking stock of child survival. Um, There's progress being made, there's attention given to it, and people are getting strategic with, as this headline from the journal Pediatrics says, Global Initiative for for Improving Hospital Care for Children. Not all children die in the hospital, but a lot of them do. If we improve hospital care, children will be more likely to live, and other children will be more likely to go to the hospital when when they're sick because they know they might live. How many of you have already worked overseas? That's fun. About half. Let's see the other hands. How many have not? Okay, half of you aren't voting. Okay, anyway. So the majority of us have already worked overseas. Some of you might see countries where you've worked. Looking at progress, there are a couple of things. The numbers in detail don't matter, unless you're one of those people dying. Uh, But what's the under five mortality rate? That means out of a 1,000 healthy live-born babies, how many don't survive till preschool, till kindergarten, age five? So in China, there's been huge progress from 1990 to 2010, from 40 out of 1,000, 4% to 1.5% not making it to school age. That's fantastic, but it's still a lot of people not making it. Uh, Bangladesh, again, fantastic, cut it by about two-thirds. India's cut it almost in half. Mali's making a little less progress. Um, Thailand was doing a lot better before and is doing a fair bit better now. Uh, We can see different progress in different countries meaning that some countries are making progress, the rest of us can learn from them. If a country like India is, well, let's say the country is Thailand has cut it down or uh, Bangladesh has cut it down nicely, what can India learn from Bangladesh? What can Mali learn from all of them? Similar countries that have places to go in terms of improvement to help more children survive. Ninety-nine percent of the under five deaths occur in developing countries. Tragically, some children die in this country, but 99% of the under five deaths occur in developing countries. That's seven and a half million preschoolers dying every year. This is tragic and this is sad. Since we started talking, dozens of children have died preventable deaths around the year, just in the 20 minutes that we've been talking already. But some countries, we mentioned uh, Bangladesh um, and here, Liberia, another example. Some countries are making progress and we can learn from them. So what are the major problems that are killing kids? Does that offend anybody? Killing kids? That sounds so rude and crude. What are the major situations that cause increased mortality in children? But in fact, these are kid killers. This is not a gentle, comfortable dinner-time conversation. But this is something that should grab our minds and our hearts. Kids are being killed unnecessarily. What are the major kid killers? Neonatal problems, either asphyxia from a problem birth um, or an infection, whether it's tetanus or a sepsis in a newborn. Um, infections and problems of the newborns are an issue. And a lot of that does relate to either asphyxia or to prematurity. Acute respiratory infections, mostly pneumonia, some bronchiolitis. It's killing a lot of kids. Diarrhea, there's been huge progress made in the battle against diarrhea and dehydration, but it still ranks way up there as one of the major kid killers. Malaria kills fewer than a million children every year. That's huge progress from where it used to be, but it's still about 800,000 kids dying. Ooh, that's a lot of kids. 800,000 kids dying every year because of malaria around the world. Measles kills around. Sorry, 700,000 around the world. Injury is still a problem. AIDS is an issue, but not as much. And malnutrition, goal number one, malnutrition contributes to two-thirds of those deaths. The deaths from measles, diarrhea, injury, pneumonia, malnutrition is a contributing factor to those deaths. So, in fact, malnutrition is that sea of problem in which children are swimming and trying to survive. We'll need to deal with malnutrition to help against all of those. Are there tangible, feasible, affordable interventions to cut down on death from these problems? I see a nod, I see a few nods. Indeed, there are. We can help the neonatal problems if we would get better prenatal and delivery care to women. Even pediatricians care about the health of pregnant women, um, partly selfishly for the child's sake. But getting better prenatal and delivery care will help. What can we do about pneumonia and acute respiratory infection? We can teach people to count the respiratory rate. Children that are breathing too fast with their febrile illness with a cough might need antibiotics. We need to have ready antibiotics available. ORS is useful for children with dehydration from diarrhea. ORS is oral rehydration solution. Giving enough fluid with the appropriate amount of sugar to help absorption and the right amount of salt to be able to absorb the fluid um, can help. And we need to give good nutrition. Some people still think if you're having diarrhea, you shouldn't eat normal food. And then their nutritional status drops farther and farther each time they get diarrhea. Malaria. Ooh, alphabet soup. Quiz time. Wife of medical student. No, we won't pick on you. Uh, How many of you know what ITNs are? I love it. That's not very many. Somebody tell us. Insecticide-treated nets. Bed nets. Mosquito nets with bug juice, something like permethrin in them, to kill off the germs. If kids sleep under or even near an insecticide-treated net, they're less likely to get anemic and febrile and sick and dead because of malaria. What's IPT? Mm -hmm. Russ knows he's a pediatrician from Togo. Intermittent preventive therapy. There are different ways to treat malaria in areas where everybody's getting malaria some off and on all the time. We can give intermittent preventive treatment. It doesn't prevent infection, but it's to prevent the infection that they're going to get from going on to illness. So, intermittent preventive treatment the subscripts I have written there are either IPTI for infants or IPTC for children, or if we were more broad and inclusive, we would say IPTP. for for pregnant women. Um, So it means giving people by a regular schedule treatment doses of malaria medicine to prevent them from getting sick from the malaria they've likely been exposed to. That can be applied for children by giving it with their immunization visits. When they go in for their regular baby checkups and shots, then they can get their malaria medicine at the same time, three, six, and nine months, for instance. Um, can be given in childhood later on, and then having good malaria treatment matters. Some parts of the world still don't have good access to appropriate anti so we need to do that. Measles, it's a tragedy that anybody would die of measles. It's fully preventable with fairly available, affordable vaccines, and yet people are still dying of measles. Injury is still a problem. Different places have different sorts of injuries. In this country, children die of injury because somebody else chose to drink while they were driving or not stop at a stop sign or somebody chose to be too busy to put the child in an appropriate safety seat. In other parts of the world, children die of injuries because they're around cooking fires or the only way they can get mangoes to eat is climbing the tree first and they fall out or something. So there are different environmental issues we can help with. HIV and AIDS, wow, we could prevent AIDS. There are ways to do that. Preventing pediatric AIDS starts with the families. Prevention matters, and then getting access to treatment for people that have it. Malnutrition, of course, we can do things about as well. So there's a lot we can do to help children. But one of the other things we can obviously be doing to help children when a lot of the children are dying because of neonatal complications is to move on to goal number five, improve maternal health. We need to help women stay healthy. And whether we're going out to a community in a poor village and doing prenatal checks at the doorway to a woman's hut or whether we're seeing them in a clinic, we need to provide accessible prenatal care to women so that they can get appropriate care during pregnancy. Childbirth is dangerous. There are about a half a million women who die because of pregnancy complications every year. Are we starting to glaze over with statistics That's a lot. That's a big number. That should be painful. Think of the joy. I'm not going to pick on anybody that looks pregnant sitting in the second row or anything. But think of the joy of anticipating childbirth. That's fun. It's wonderful. And to realize that half a million women every year don't survive their pregnancy. We need to do something about that. There are things that can be done. Um, The problems are either bleeding or infection or obstructed labor or medical things like hypertension that come up. And tragically, Three and a half million children die in the first days of life, either stillborn or not surviving the time even to go home from the hospital. So half a million maternal deaths related to pregnancy, three and a half million newborn deaths usually related to problems in pregnancy. Uh, We need to improve maternal health. Fortunately, there has been progress. We talk about progress that's being made. There's been a big shift in terms of international pediatrics. We're not only talking about survival. Now we're talking more about helping children developmentally. More and more children are surviving their obstructive labor. They might be asphyxiated. They might have some neurologic problems afterwards and need care for that. But more and more children are surviving, but still too many children aren't. We need to care about mothers. The goal of the United Nations is to reduce maternal mortality by three-quarters. That would still be accepting 100,000 or so women dying every year, but it would be delightful if we could get it even down to that level. Number six, get specific. For those of us who are clinicians, we get specific on the goal number six, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases. Now, this is the one we've had two so far, reduce child mortality and fight disease. This is where most of us doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner types get into the picture. But, in fact, we're trying to paint that picture that it's a broader scene that God's put before us. We have to impact all of the life of people. But what can we do about different diseases? Specific diseases we can help with. Insect-borne diseases like malaria, if we use the ITNs, here I call them insecticide-treated bed nets, um, we could help. 1.7 million African children had bed nets in their sleeping places in the year 2000. That was up to 20, more than tenfold increase in the first seven years of this millennium. Bed nets are more accessible to more people, but it's still just a minority of African children in malarial areas that are using bed nets. Antiretroviral treatment is being more and more available all the time, um, so that it's gone from 75,000 HIV-positive people, children, getting antiretroviral treatment in 2005. Within three years, that was up five-fold to how many were getting help. But still today, only about two-thirds, excuse me, only about one-third of HIV-positive children that qualify for treatment are actually getting it. We need to get bed nets out to help malaria. We need to get antiretrovirals available for HIV-positive children. And what else about malaria? I like to think tangibly. And so if we're thinking mothers and children and malaria, when I was working in Congo 20 years ago, I wondered what are the effects of maternal malaria on newborns? I wondered this because the people I was working with came in pregnant, and some of their babies got fevers, and I thought it couldn't be from malaria because I hadn't had long enough since a mosquito bite uh, for the baby to get malaria. And the nurses taught me something. I looked at the mothers, I looked at the babies, and I saw some kids were getting malaria, and in fact, Children were being born with malaria. And the place I was working with Bob and Paul years ago, um, we looked at 300 consecutive newborns or 300 consecutive pregnancies. Three of them were twins, so we didn't count them. And interestingly, 12% of the newborns were born with malaria. Thanks, Mom. You gave me all sorts of stuff for nine months, including some parasites. Uh, But, indeed, malaria parasites were getting through to mothers, and it was giving them bigger risk of having fevers, and it was giving the children a bigger risk of dying. If we're going to combat diseases like malaria, we'll start with mothers, have them be treated when they have malaria. We'll think about malaria for the babies. And, fortunately, there is progress being made, and we now know that about 6% of infant deaths, 6% of deaths in the first year of life are because the mother had malaria when she was pregnant. Take out all the other things killing kids. The mother's malaria accounts for 6% of children dying in the first year of life. Um, That's a big problem and it's something we can do. The mother's malaria leads to all sorts of troubles for kids, low birth weight, anemia, fever, death, uh, more malaria and more anemia in the later months of life. And we need to care about mother's malaria if we're going to help the children. Insecticide-treated nets work for pregnant women, protecting against malaria, protecting against anemia, protecting against miscarriage and stillbirth, and protecting against low birth weight. Wow, you want a feasible intervention? Get the mothers to sleep under insecticide-treated nets. That can help the mothers and it can help kids. Uh, More data here on what we mentioned, uh, intermittent preventive therapy, uh, for pregnant women, um, there's great evidence that SP, sulfadoxine pyrimethamine, that some call FANCIDAR, there's great evidence that, that taking that medicine during a couple of times during the final trimester of pregnancy leads to less maternal parasites, leads to less low birth weight deliveries, leads to less prematurity, leads to less malaria in babies and in the placentas. It works whether the mother is HIV positive or not, and it works best if you get the community involved instead of just doctors and nurses at a hospital. So we're going to be dealing with hunger and poverty and education and gender equality. We're going to be dealing with survival and diseases, but we're going to look a little bit farther to try to ensure environmental sustainability. If we care about the health of children, we will join with the United Nations and 185 countries of the world to care about sustainable environments. Does anybody remember in the summer of 2010, a little over a year ago, why the Delhi Games got famous? Commonwealth Games in Delhi, India, athletic events. Anybody remember that from the news? They did not, hmm? Pollution. And the pollution was in the hotel rooms and in the water supplies. The athletes from other Commonwealth countries were going to India, and they said, we can't compete here because the water's not clean in our hotel rooms and the bath water looks dirty. We will not compete in India, and some countries pulled out of this great athletic contest, because their hotels aren't nice enough for us. That's a real problem for athletes. And my pediatrician's heart was crying and saying, that's a real problem for the millions of children living in that city who equally don't have clean water to bathe in, adequate water to drink, adequate sanitation, or adequate international groups advocating for them to get more help. Um, So the Delhi games reminded us that not all of the world that we might want to go to is going to be perfectly clean. We knew that. So how are we doing with safe water? One of the goals of ensuring environmental sustainability is to cut in half the proportion without safe water. There's been success. If we look at the numbers already two-thirds, ten years into trying to meet the Millennium Development Goals, we've already made that. We've cut in half the number without safe water, meaning we've improved how many do have safe water in North Africa, Latin America, and different parts of Asia. But we still have an opportunity 48% of people living in developing countries still lack adequate sanitation. If we care about health of people, it's not just drugs and diagnoses. Some of that's going to be water. Andrea's there. She works on a water project in Central America. There's a lot we can do to help with that. Number eight, Millennium Development Goal number eight says, develop a global partnership for development. A politician's wife who became a politician once said, it takes a village to raise a child. If we're going to talk about helping children, it's not going to just take a village. It's going to take teamwork, multinational, multidisciplinary, multifaceted teams partnering together to work towards development of populations and systems around the world. Some people have figured out how to expand their enterprises around the world. It's hard to go too far without a Coke, but I'm sorry, without McDonald's. But even if you get beyond the reach of McDonald's, you can probably find a Coke pretty easily. Uh, multinational corporations are doing a very good job at showing partnership and teamwork to reach into developing countries for money. Hmm, maybe that should be a model for the rest of us. Uh, when I think about Teamwork, I think, even about medical research. One of the funnest papers I contributed to ever in the academic literature I didn't do much for. But it's really fun to be one of about a dozen authors from four different continents. Sometimes there are partnerships that can be done um, that will help people. One of the other papers I worked on was studying nutritional rickets in Bangladesh. And I think it is so cool that we had as many authors As we did subjects in the study, Uh, it takes a multinational team people working together, coming from different angles to be able to help, and we can all work together uh, to help. So we've got eight goals before us. Eight goals if we choose to join with the United Nations and 185 countries of the world, if we choose to try to help improve the health of the children of the world, if we care about the next generation, if we remember that Jesus does love the little children of the world, Maybe these eight goals would give us a framework to join, to partner, to team up with other national and non-governmental groups as we work on these eight goals. But it's not going to be easy. You don't achieve fitness by taking the escalator to the gym. Um, And similarly, if we're going to work for global health, we're going to have to go up the steps to get there. The steps of dealing with hunger and poverty the step of dealing with schools and education, the step of dealing with gender equality, the step of improving infant mortality, the step of improving maternal health, the step of dealing with specific diseases, the step of environmental sustainability, and the step of teamwork. What better team can we have than what's gathered in this room and at this conference? The team of Jesus Christ mobilized and going into the world uh, to make a move to help the health of the children of the world. I happen to now work at an institution in Minnesota where the founder, Will Mayo, used to say, we have two goals in medicine. And if he had been a nurse, he might have said the same thing for nursing. Our goals are heal the sick and advance the science. We can do it together by learning new things, by applying knowledge that we already have, and putting it toward the good of children around the world. Uh, So that's where we can get to, and that's where it can all go. And I am guessing in our final eight minutes that there are probably some comments, questions, rebuttals, or if not, we'll just divide up into eight groups and then go out and conquer each of these goals in the next few days. <laughs> comments or questions? Yes, we Tom. The convenience abortions and in the United States, we right the rest of them. Ah, that's the competitive spirit. If we would include ab- abortions in the United States, we'd rank right up there with the rest of them. Yeah, these data are from government sources that are data of infant deaths related to live births. Deaths of preborn children were not included in that. Um, and, yes, you've raised a whole other big issue of lots of conceived, growing pre-born humans um, that aren't seeing the light of day. Um, very good point. So for those listening on the microphone that couldn't hear what she just said, I think most of us heard that here in the room at least. Um, She says that she works in an academic medical center in this country, but she's enjoying these days because she's here at this medical missions conference. Then she's going to a global health educators conference, and this is a special time. But she's asking the question, what ways can a faith-based sort of group work with an academic group, and how can it all combine together? Um, Just for story time – Uh, I will point out this article that was about rickets in Bangladesh. And when I was in Bangladesh working on this, I was from at that time an American uh, medical center, an academic U.S.-based group. If we look at the other co-authors on that, um, one of them was a nutritional biochemist from Cornell University in New York. One of them was a former campus crusader, now we call that crew, but working for a non-governmental organization in Bangladesh. And one of the authors is from a Baptist mission hospital in Bangladesh. This was a whole team there. And then a couple of them were from a a government hospital, maternal child institute in Bangladesh. We had all gotten together around our common interest in children. How can we partner, find people with similar interests? The UN says we're interested in this. Find people with interest. One night we were having dinner when we were working on this little time, figuring out rickets for those kids. And over dinner, I found myself increasingly bonded. Maybe I shouldn't say this at the microphone. Anyway, I found myself increasingly bonded to one of the guys that turned out to be a co-author on this paper uh, because he was really committed. One of the Muslim guys with me, he was saying, "Yeah, I just I'm a Muslim, but I sometimes go for. Um, the end of Ramadan, but otherwise I'm not really involved. And somebody else said, every Friday I'm in the mosque. And one of the other guys, a co-author here, he, five times every day he was at the mosque praying. It was very interruptive to the work we were doing, but five times. And I found myself really bonded to him. He was full-on committed to what he believed. I could relate to that. I felt myself bonded with him. After dinner, one of the others, the guy that just went once a year to the mosque, he said, Phil, be careful. I said, what do you mean? He said, be careful how you talk to him. I said, what do you mean? I like him. I'm feeling really bonded to him. He's committed. Uh, And he said, watch out. I didn't quite get it. He was talking about some friend, Al, and he'd gone to some training camp in Pakistan or something. And it wasn't until a few years later after September 11th that I realized, oh, that's who Al Qaeda was. Uh, So this one friend was trying to protect me because, anyway, I went back to Bangladesh to see the guy, and he wasn't there anymore. And nobody would tell me what happened to him. They say, oh, where's so-and-so? And And they say, oh, he's gone. Oh, where did he go? He's gone. Uh, I don't know if he was a suicide bomber or what happened. Uh, One way or the other, that's a story to say it can work. And I actually think working in an American academic medical setting makes it a lot easier to connect and bond when we're connecting around something that God wants to do, like help children. Um, So it makes it easier, perhaps, than somebody that's just with the faith-based group, and we can link everybody into it, and it works fantastically well. Story time still. So after that time in Bangladesh, a few of us got together and wrote this big monograph about nutritional rickets. It was put together by the people from Cornell in New York. Totally secular thing. And I wrote one little part of it, and I just was saying, you know, calcium metabolism is really complicated. The way calcium and vitamin D interact is really complex. But I didn't write calcium and vitamin D metabolism is really complex. I happened to use the words, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then I went on to say that. I get a phone call about a year later. Somebody says, yeah, I'm interested. I'm working in China, and I'm interested in the problem of rickets, and I saw you wrote this stuff. And he says, I wonder if you could come help us. It turns out, of course, that that guy happened to be a worker, an M-type worker with a group in China. And we had a wonderful bonding time. Um, so how can we make those connections? I think it can work beautifully. It's more official if you're with a mission group, but being in an academic place, the needs are there, the strength of academic resources are there, and just talking to people and working together, I think it can actually work really well. Um, next week I'm going back to Congo, paid for by the Mayo Clinic, to do teaching to pediatric residents in a mission hospital. I mean, it all, things can work very well. Other questions? Final couple minutes. Okay, final one minute. Yes? Um, So her comment for the microphone. um, Sometimes it's people with secular groups that it's best to work with because they're the ones that need some. Somebody said something about light so shining. Um, And it's not just do the outcome of the work, but that partnership and teamwork along the way is where a lot of light is shining. And who would think that we – people don't say, I'm going to be a missionary to wherever you work, to – academic medical center, that could be considered a pretty needy group. You're already there. God's put us there. And I look around this room and see people that have already infiltrated for the kingdom, all sorts of other places, secular, academic, this country, other countries. Um, There are great ways that God wants to shine for the children, for the workers along the way and everybody. It's 5.15. We're going to stop. I'm available. If anybody wants copies of anything, you can email me or let me know. But thank you all very much.